0: How does an organization go from being good to great? That question was posed in one of my favorite secular leadership books written by Jim Collins. The title was Good to Great. I read it years ago. And the book was fascinating because uh, Jim Collins did some research of different companies throughout our country. And he examined companies that were good companies. Things were going well. But something happened, and those companies went from being just good companies to being great companies. They experienced great financial and marketplace breakthroughs. And he began to examine these companies to look if there were some common characteristics of those those businesses that went from good to great. It was fascinating to look at this study. as I read it as a pastor, I began to make immediate application to my own leadership and, and to the life of the church. And I've thought a lot about that idea. How does the church go, go from being good, a good church, to a great church? Well, we're going to see the answer to that question in our text this morning. We're going to be encouraged by God's Word to go from being good to great. But I want to be clear when I talk about greatness I'm not talking about greatness in the eyes of this world and in the eyes of the church culture. I'm not talking about getting the applause of men when I talk about greatness. When I speak of greatness for the church, I'm referring to greatness in the area of advancing the kingdom. How can we be a great church in getting the gospel to the lost? Keeping that in mind, look with me in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, as we continue our study through this wonderful book in the New Testament, line by line, verse by verse, we've made it down to Acts chapter 4, verse 23. I want to ask you this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, truth with no mixture of error. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And, look in verse 33, with great power. The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Let's pray together. Our Father who is in heaven, Hallowed be your name. There is none like you. There is none but you. You are the one true God. You are glorious and majestic and awesome. You are a God of splendor and majesty and transcendence and holiness and sovereignty and grace, and mercy, and love, and patience. Lord, we worship you today for who you are. And it has been so good to gather as a family of faith and just declare the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is enough. Lord, we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We know that Christ is enough to satisfy our souls. And yet there's so many in our community, in our families, in our world that are looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. So God, would you use this sermon today by your Spirit to mobilize your church to go to a lost and dying world and say, Christ is enough. God, give your church the grace to live a life that shares Christ with the lost and dying. Lord, have your way in our midst. Touch our hearts, change our lives, transform us in this moment. Lord, we believe that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So Holy Spirit of God, would you move with power, with power, Lord, in our midst. And God, I ask that you would establish my steps today in your word. And we ask and pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Was well, we've worked our way through the book of Acts, we've seen that in a dramatic fashion, God healed a man who had been lame since birth for 40 years through the apostle Peter. And after this man was healed by the power of God, people began to gather to look at this man who had been laying at the gate day after day begging for alms, but now he was leaping in the temple, he was praising God, and people began to gather to say, what happened to this man? And as people gather, Peter preaches. He preaches a sermon pointing the people to Jesus Christ who had healed this man. And people get saved. They respond to Peter's message. And this infuriates the religious leaders. They did not want more and more people to become followers of Christ. They wanted the influence in in that culture. They did not want people to follow Jesus. They did not believe that he was the Messiah sent from God. And so we see in chapter 4 that the religious leaders get mad and they, in essence, threaten the apostles. They say, listen, no more talking about Jesus. No more preaching in Jesus name. And they threatened them and warned them and they released them. And we just read in verse 23 that when Peter and John were released, they immediately go back to their church family. And they share with them this story of what had happened and how God had had healed this man and people had gotten saved. And yet the religious leaders were infuriated and were attempting to intimidate the apostles into silence. And as they hear this from Peter. They gather together and we see what happens next. I believe in this passage that we just read together, we see some insight, we gain some insight into what it looks like for a church to go from good to great in terms of kingdom advance. How does a church go from just being a good church you know, things are good, people are happy, uh, Churches is growing. I mean, things are good, things are positive. But how does the church go beyond just being a, a good church to being a great church in terms of the gospel getting to the lost? Well, I want to give you four answers to this question. First of all, to go from good to great, a church will need great prayer. A church will need great prayer prayer did you notice the response of the believers when peter and john reported to them of the threats and the intimidation of the religious leaders it's interesting to note that the church did not say hey get the congressman on the phone let's get a reporter in here and get it on tv so people can see the injustice taking place you no know they did they gathered together look what it says in verse 24, and they lifted their voices to God. Isn't that interesting? When faced with intimidation and the threat of persecution, the church gathered together and they heard what was happening and they lifted their voices to God and they prayed. What is the secret of this New Testament church that sees 3,000 saved, and then 2,000 more saved, and then Samaritans saved, and folks in Antioch saved, and folks in Asia Minor saved, and folks in Rome saved. And the Bible says these folks turned the world upside down. What was their secret? Well, it's no secret, is it? They were a people of great prayer. I wonder if you could say your first response to challenges in your life is prayer. That's the first thing you think. We need to pray. Now, I want you to notice there are three characteristics of great prayer in this text. First of all, they were unified. Unified in prayer. Look what it says there in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends, reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices. Look at that next word. Together. They lifted their voices. Their voices together. They prayed together. The word together there in the original Greek language in which it was written literally means with one mind. That's what it means. So they prayed with one mind. They all had kingdom advance on their hearts. They all wanted to see the gospel go forth. And so they began to pray with one mind. This word, Kittle writes denotes the inner unity of a group of people engaged in an an externally similar action. One mind. So they were united in their prayer. They were all praying for the same thing. They were all praying, if you will, in the same direction. And there's power when God's people are on the same page and they're calling out to God in a unified manner. This prayer was unified. Secondly... This prayer was undergirded by Scripture. Undergirded by Scripture. Let's examine this prayer. It says in verse 24, they start out saying, Sovereign Lord. I like that. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then quoted in this prayer is Psalm 2. Why did... The Gentiles raged, the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they say, Lord, you told us in Psalm 2 that nations and kings were going to rise up against you and against your anointed, Jesus Christ. You told us this was coming. This should not take us by surprise because your word tells us that. So they're praying in a way that is based upon the truth of God's Word. And then they take God's Word in their prayer and apply it to their situation. Look what they say in verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, that's a Jew, and Pontius Pilate, a Gentile, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They're saying here, Lord, you told us that kings and nations would rise up against you and against Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what's happening. But Psalm 2 reminds us that you are greater than the nations, greater than the kings. The nations are to you as a drop in the bucket. And you, when it's all said and done, God, you will win. So notice what they say in their prayer Even though Pontius Pilate's doing his thing, and Herod's over here doing his thing, we know that, God, you're doing your thing, you're in control of it all, and you are working out your plan and purpose. In other words, their their knowledge of the Word of God gave them a proper perspective of what was happening. It gave them confidence in God as they were praying. Listen to me. It's important that our prayers are undergirded by the Word of God because the Word of God gives us perspective and the Word of God strengthens our faith. The the, the better you know the Word of God, the better you will pray. Let me say it again. I don't think you heard that. The better you know the Word of God, the better you will pray. And guess what? If you are praying the Word of God back to God, you know you're always praying truth. Right? Right? You don't have to make up words, say, just pray the Scriptures back to God. You know you're praying truth, you know you're praying in accordance with His will. So as we pray, we want to pray biblically informed prayers. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He wanted to live to such a degree that if someone cut him, he would bleed a Bible. And he wanted that knowledge of God's Word to show up in his prayer life. And it's so interesting to see that the church here, they were praying, but notice they're not untethered from truth, are they? They were undergirded by the truth of the Word of God. So they prayed this great prayer in accordance with the truth of the Bible. But also, not only should prayer, great prayer, be unified and undergirded by Scripture, but prayer should be urgent. Everyone say urgent. Look what it says in verse 29. And now, Lord, surrounded by threats, intimidation, possible persecution, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Now look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Now that word prayed is an interesting word. There's a common word for prayer, kind of a general word for prayer in the Greek language uh, that is is "prosuké." That's not the word used here. When it says in verse 31, they, when they had prayed. The word there is deomai, which means this. It means to ask with urgency. It means to plead. It even was used in the first century to speak of begging. Isn't that interesting? They're not just saying... God, bless your church. God, help us out. No, they were crying out to God, Lord, we need you help! Big difference, isn't there? Their prayer was filled with urgency because they saw the seriousness of their situation. Now, while you've been sitting here listening to me, something's been happening, and it's been happening in an involuntary way. You've been breathing. And the reason I know that is because you're all still alive looking at me. You've been breathing. And you haven't been paying attention to how many breaths per minute. It's just been happening in an involuntary manner. And and you and I understand, don't we, that breathing is critical to life. Can I tell you this? Prayer is as critical to a church for kingdom advance as breathing is to our physical life. It is that important. So God gives us this pattern in Acts 4 of unified, undergirded, urgent prayer, calling out to God, begging Him for His help. Have you prayed like that lately? Have you prayed with other Christians like that lately? That's what we need to do if we want to go from being good to Great. Great prayer. But secondly, if we want to go from good to great in terms of kingdom advance, we need to exhibit great boldness. Great boldness. They're rehearsing what they know about God from His Word at the first part of this prayer. And then in verse 29, they begin to make some requests. And we see two things here in these requests. First of all, we see the need of boldness. The need of boldness. Look what they say in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Look upon their threats. They were doing ministry in a very intimidating situation. They were being threatened, and they knew that persecution was probably soon to follow. Listen, as we study our way through Acts, persecution comes very, very soon. And they knew this. They knew that physical harm, harm to their financial situation, harm to their family, harm to their future, they knew that it was a real possibility. And so in praying, they say, Lord, take note of their threats. We are being threatened. In other words, they knew that if they were going to be witnesses for Christ, they would need boldness. If you and I are going to be witnesses for Christ, we need boldness because, listen, one of Satan's primary weapons is intimidation as he attempts to silence our witness. Again, Satan's not concerned about us gathering here and talking about Jesus in the confines of these four walls. But when we we begin to get outside of our walls and speak the gospel to lost people, Satan will do everything he can to stop that. And so he wants to intimidate you and me in the silence. That's the need of boldness. But secondly, I want you to see the nature of boldness. The nature of boldness. What does boldness look like? Look in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued, watch this, to speak the Word of God with boldness. And look what it says in verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So how do you know, listen to me, come in close, this is important. How do you know if a church is a bold, courageous church? Here's how you know. Do the people open up their mouths and talk about Jesus? That's it. That's the marker. That's the nature of boldness. Let me say it like this. This is in your notes. The early church exhibited boldness by the verbal... Witness of the Word of God and their personal testimonies. Notice I said they're verbal. At some point, if we're going to reach our community and reach our nation and reach our world, somebody somewhere has got to open up their mouth and speak about Jesus, right? Verbal witness. There's a a famous quote that circulated through the church for years. I heard it when I was a teenager. And it's a popular quote because it lets us off the hook. And I've seen it attributed to different people. I've seen it attributed to St. Francis of Sisi. But the quote is this. Preach the gospel. Use words if necessary. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? I can just go out there and live my life and, and I don't have to say anything. I can just live and, and just do my thing for Jesus and people will see my life. And, and, and that, that's all that is required but what does the Bible say? The Bible says that faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But how can they believe in him who they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone to tell them? We are called, listen, to open up our mouths and share Christ. Is our lifestyle important? Yes. We want to we show the credibility of what it means to follow Jesus and show them what a changed life looks like. Yes, we want to live a life that supports our witness, but we've got to open up our mouths and share Jesus Christ with the lost. That's the nature of boldness. Verbal witness. Verbal witness. Verbal witness. And the statistics say... That about 95% of those who call themselves believers in Christ never open up their mouth and share Jesus with a person they believe to be lost. 95% stay silent. So what do we need to go from good to great? We need great boldness. Great boldness. But third, to go from good to great, we need great boldness. Power. Great power. Look what it says there in verse 31. It says, When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Pretty awesome phenomena, right? God, God uh, signified His presence and His answer to their prayer by physically shaking the place. And they were all filled with who? The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Look in verse 33. And with great power, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We see here the church making a difference because they were granted by God great power to do what He wanted them to do. So, what's the source of this power? Where does power come from to help us to be witnesses for Christ? Well, listen to me. Power for Christian living and Christian witness comes from the Holy Spirit. Very clear there. They prayed, they filled the Holy Spirit, and then they begin to speak forth truth. The power comes from the Holy Spirit of God. And Listen to me. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are born again, if you've been saved, if you've been redeemed, the Holy Spirit of God lives on the inside of you. The Bible calls that the indwelling of the Spirit. And if you're saved, you have all of the Spirit you're ever going to get. You have all the Spirit living on the inside of you. But here's the question. Does He have all of you? Are you surrendered to the Spirit? Because if you're surrendered to the power of the Spirit on a daily basis and you let Him have control, He will fill up your life. That's what's meant by the filling of the Spirit. He'll fill up your life and empower you to live and to speak for the sake of Jesus. The source of power comes from the Holy Spirit. If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. But listen, every day you've got to surrender. Every day, Holy Spirit, would you fill up my life? Guide me, empower me, help me. That's the source of power. But let's just say a word about the significance of power. Why is this so critical? Well, the filling of the Holy Spirit is a greatly neglected aspect of church growth. The filling of the Holy Spirit is a greatly neglected aspect of church growth. I think we went through a time in American Christianity which greatly harmed the church in America. Roughly the mid-80s through the 90s. I believe we went through what I'll call the conference era of church growth. And what that entailed is you'd see successful pastors that would have a certain methodology and they would say, listen... If you'll take this methodology and apply it to your church, you'll grow like my church has grown. And then they would do these big conferences, and pastors would come from all around and learn the methodology and read the book. They'd go back to their church and say, hey, we're changing everything. We're going to do this new thing, and we're go- hey, growth is coming. It's an automatic deal. And people began to chase fads and trends and mimic other pastor's Instead of, listen, depending upon the power of the Spirit in their context, in their community. And I believe it greatly damaged the church in America. I really do. We're still dealing with the remnants of that today. I think that the tide is shifting, perhaps, but I believe we're still struggling with that today. Wouldn't it be great if we had conferences where a pastor stood up and said, Hey, I don't really know what happened. Come around, gather around, come in close, pay your fee, because I want to tell you I have no clue what just happened. The church has been blessed, God is growing the church, we're seeing people saved and families put back together and people set free, and it's awesome, but I can't explain it. We're preaching the word and we're loving folks and the spirit of God is working in our midst and he's turning this community upside down. I don't have a, I don't have a formula. I don't have a plan. I don't, listen, it's just God doing something significant in our midst. Wouldn't that be a good conference? It'd be a great conference. Call it the mystery conference. We have no clue what happened here. It's a mystery other than God has moved in our midst. That'd be a good conference, wouldn't it? Maybe we need to have it here. We not have might not have many people here, but it'd be good. You see, the feeling of the Holy Spirit is a greatly neglected aspect of church growth. And I know, listen, I've read a bunch of church growth books. I have a whole bookshelf that's, that's full of church growth books, and I've read them. and And, and there's some good principles there about evangelism and discipleship and, and fellowship and what you you know how you're doing things in your church and your structure and your plan and your strategy and your vi- all that, all that can be very very helpful. But listen, apart from the Holy Spirit's power, it's all vanity. It's all ineffective if God has not shown up and filled up our lives and given us the boldness we need to be verbal witnesses for Christ. We've got to have the power of the Spirit operating in our midst. We want to be a Spirit-filled church full of Spirit-filled families that are full of Spirit-filled people. That is our only hope to go from being good to great. But there's one final thing I want you to see, and this is so critical. How does the church go from being good to great? Well, great prayer and great power and great boldness, but fourth and last, great grace. Great grace. Look what it says. Did you notice this back in verse 33? With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I just love to talk about grace. I just love to talk about grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor or blessing and goodness poured out upon His people. Grace is God's undeserved favor, blessing and goodness poured out upon His people. That's what grace is. And we need to think about the role of grace in our Christian lives. First of all, grace saves. Aren't you grateful for salvation? Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For by grace are you saved, through faith that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved by grace. In other words, we don't deserve salvation. We deserve hell. We deserve eternity separated from God. But God in His goodness and His grace has given us the opportunity to embrace Jesus Christ and be saved. We don't earn it, we receive it. It's a gift that we receive. God saves by grace. John Newton got this when he wrote Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me grace saves but not only does grace save but grace sanctifies grace sanctifies listen to me aren't you glad that when god saves you he doesn't just leave you alone i'm so grateful that when god saved me when god saved me at nine years of age He didn't say okay wade you're in you're going to heaven good luck do the best you can in this old world no god saved me The Holy Spirit entered my life and God began a transformation process whereby he will never leave me nor forsake me. And God is constantly working on me. How about you? He's sanctifying me. He's making me more like Jesus. And that process is called sanctification. Over in Titus chapter 2, it speaks of grace not just saving us, but teaching us to say no to ungodliness and to pursue righteousness Grace saves, but grace, God's favor, God's blessing, God's help, also sanctifies. If you were saved, you're saved by grace. If you're different than you were 10 years ago, it's because of God's grace. You don't deserve it. Third, grace strengthens. One of my favorite verses in the Bible that guides my own life, my own ministry philosophy, that guides our church's ministry philosophy is, is found in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Where Paul says, listen, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, young Timothy, take these things and trust them to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the process of discipleship. I love that verse. But something very significant is found right before it in verse 1. In verse 1, Paul says to Timothy, before he calls him to be a disciple maker, he says, be strong in the grace of That is in Christ Jesus. I want you to hear me. Because we talk a lot about discipleship around here. We cannot make disciples effectively apart from God's grace. We flat need His help. Right? Grace strengthens us to do what He's called us to do. We don't deserve it, but God gives us that help. And then fourth, grace sustains Grace sustains. Remember over in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is dealing with the thorn in the flesh. He asked God to remove it three times. Remember that passage? And God gave him the thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. And so God says, No, I'm going to leave the thorn there to keep you humble. And here's the conclusion that that Paul came to, verse 8. Three times I pled with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 12, about this, that it should leave me, the thorn in the flesh. But he said to me, listen, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, Paul says that God said to him, my grace will sustain you through the trial." For my power made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul writes, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How can Paul say, when I'm weak, I'm strong? Because Paul knew that even in the midst of very difficult things, God's grace was with him. And God would sustain him. God would carry him through the difficulty. Great grace. So grace saves and sanctifies and strengthens and sustains. And the Bible says back in Acts chapter 4 that God's great grace was upon the church. How do you explain the explosive growth of the early church? Listen, they didn't have Buildings or budgets or buses or bowling alleys. They didn't have Lifeway Christian store to go and get resources from. They didn't have 6.40 a.m. to listen to preachers on or Caleb to listen to encouraging Christian music. They didn't have any of that. They were surrounded by people that desperately wanted to stop their verbal witness. How do you explain this early church turning the world upside down to the point when people in the Roman Empire, people in in Caesar's household were getting saved? How do you explain that? God's great grace. Listen, God was helping them. That's how you explain it. And and if we're going to go from good To great, guess what? We need some help. Because I'm not up to the task as your pastor. And you're not up to the task in your own strength. We need God's help. We need God's grace. I was thinking about heaven. You know, in Revelation it speaks of the elders taking their crowns which were which were given to them most likely as a reward for their for their obedience their service to Christ. The Bible says these elders they take these crowns of reward and they cast them down at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because they understood If anything good had happened in their life, it was was a result of God's grace. And He deserved the praise for anything good that had happened in and through them. And I believe that if you and I live faithful lives, we get to heaven, there'll be some rewards given to us. The Bible teaches that. Perhaps we'll have some crowns that the Lord will place upon our head in heaven. You know what we're going to do? we're going to take them off as quick as we can and just cast them at the feet of Jesus because it will be crystal clear on that day that if anything good happened through our lives, it was just God's grace. His undeserved favor. Perhaps we should just remind ourselves that we need God's help. We cannot be a great church of kingdom advance apart from God's grace. And perhaps when we see good things happen, and we've seen a lot of good things happen here at Longview Point, amen? Lots of good things. When we see good things happen, perhaps we shouldn't get the big head, right? Because if anything good happens at Longview Point, It's a gift of grace. To God be the glory. Great things He has done. And so what's the point of this all? How how would you sum it up? Here it is, you ready? Great kingdom advance should be our goal as we seek God's power to be bold witnesses for Christ. That's it. Great kingdom advance should be our goal as we seek God's power to be bold witnesses for Christ. So here's what I want to do to close down our time together this morning, I want to just ask you to to bow your head and close your eyes.